Hello and welcome to the latest Guernsey Green Finance podcast. Um, Guernsey, a leading jurisdiction in the development of sustainable finance, um, is bringing to you a series of podcasts speaking to uh, luminaries and experts in the field of sustainable and green uh, finance, uh, leading on figures in the field. And today, uh, I'm joined by Justin Sykes, founder and managing director in Invest Advisory, a Channel Islands balance advisory firm who I've known for a long time now. But actually, uh, no further ado, I want to get into the conversation, but I probably ought to introduce myself. My name is Dr. Andy Sloan. I'm Deputy Chief Executive here at Guernsey Finance and established the Guernsey Green Finance, our specific initiative dedicated to sustainable finance. So, Justin, it's great to be speaking to you this morning. We've, you know, uh, our, our paths are permanently crossing. Uh, the Channel Island has been a, a small uh, place physically. Um, it's, it's great to be you know, having you here, uh, uh, a dialogue with us about sustainable finance this morning. We were both party to, or part of, Guernsey's Sustainable Finance Week in June, which was broadly about financing sustainability uh, and utilising private capital in, uh, to, to do such in the post-COVID era. You indeed spoke at one of the um, fringe events arranged by the Chamber of Commerce. It was a, it was a great uh, a week of events, here, I think, uh, three webinars, four podcasts, and 11 different webinar and podcast fringe events. So, and we were speaking about the role of sustainability, and you specifically were talking about impact investing at the time of the crisis. Um, from your perspective, you know, to touch base a few months later, how have you seen the COVID crisis affecting investor views on sustainability and impact investing, the start of a 10, as it were? Absolutely. I think, I think we've seen a really interesting dynamic between uh, investors, uh, particularly impact investors, and, and what's happened over the last six months, both in terms of, of COVID-19, uh, as well as, I think, the, the Black Lives Matter movement as well. And I think both, both of these, these global phenomena have, I think, only sharpened an understanding that it's often the most vulnerable populations that suffer the worst consequences of global crises. And that actually capital, whether it be philanthropic capital or impact capital, deployed with purpose, can make a real difference to those, uh, those inequalities. I think most of the funds, uh, private investors and corporates that we work with have immediately reacted to some of these underlying vulnerabilities of, of disadvantaged and uh, populations. Um, you know, the industry body for the impact investment community, the Global Impact Investment Network, uh, launched a couple of months ago the Response, Recovery and Resilience Investment Coalition, the 3R Coalition. And that aims to streamline impact investing efforts that will address large scale social and economic consequences of COVID-19. And you're seeing tangible outcomes of that coalition. So a couple of examples that um, we've been involved with, um, the Soros Economic Development Fund, uh, which is the impact investment arm of George Soros's Open Society Foundations, uh, made a 50 million commitment to support COVID responsive businesses in emerging markets. For example, businesses that are actually directly involved in the front line in things like testing, developing vaccines, treatment, the deployment of infrastructure for health services, including sort of remote medicine like telemedicine. And then a second example uh, would be Google, uh, and they launched uh, two months ago a $200 million commitment to support SMEs around the world that are most impacted by COVID. And that includes the provision of, of uh, 0% loans. So, you know, concessional capital to help those businesses weather, um, weather the crisis. 
Um, I think, you know, that's that's on the sort of the positive side. I think, you know, clearly the COVID crisis in terms of travel restrictions and physical distancing is also creating challenges for investors. You know, how do you do due diligence, particularly in emerging markets when you can't travel there? How do you find um, trusted partners who can do that due diligence locally with you? Um, so I think these are some of the issues that the investment world is grappling with. And how, how do you, in the, in the new environment we're all in, carry on business um, with the same level of rigorousness and due diligence uh, in, in a way where you can't physically go and visit those investments? So a lot happening then. Um, and you, you mentioned about this, the, the mobilization of philanthropic capital. But one of the issues that I've, uh, I've personally grappled with myself is an understanding uh, of, the, of, the, of the priorities of the owners of private wealth when they're looking to invest in an impactful manner. Um, and it comes back to that sort of uh, maybe people can consider it to sometimes be a conflict between ret- returns and, and achieving good outcomes. Do you, do you see that as the, the actual case? Because, I mean, you mentioned philanthropic capital, which doesn't necessarily readily associate with a, uh, a financial or pecuniary return. But do you see that the, the environment for investing and the, the, the desire for returns has changed in any way uh, post-COVID? Yeah, so I, I, I think this sort of old narrative around there being a, a, a conflict or tension between uh, returns and achieving uh, uh, non-financial outcomes, whether they be environmental and socials, and the fact that if, if you want to achieve these, 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 uh, these, achieve good, you have to sacrifice on returns. I think that's, this all, that, that paradigm is, is pretty much dead and buried. Um, I think as the investment thematic grows, and so do the range of uh, sustainable and impact investment opportunities grow, um, those opportunities are expanding along a continuum of, of risk and return and impact. Um, and impact investment investors do indeed have a diverse financial return expectation. Some intentionally invest for below market rates, um, in line with their strategic objectives, and others pursue market competitive and, in some cases, market beating returns, um, which they may be required to achieve by their, you know, their fiduciary responsibility. So I think it is, as such, it is possible to invest with no trade-off between impact and financial return. It just really depends on the nature of the investment. Like any investing, there are lower risk and higher risk investments. And those lower risk investments can still achieve meaningful uh, financial and environmental returns. It all comes down to the intentionality of the, 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 the investor or the, and, and the investment vehicle and the ability to, to measure that, that, that change. Um, you know, I, I, of course, you know, that if, if along a continuum, if you want to maximize your impact, if you want to, to, to really see meaningful change in, in let's say, uh, a post-conflict country in, um, in the developing world, uh, where you have fundamental challenges in terms of rule of law and governance and poverty, then you're likely going to have to... Um, uh, take a hit when it comes to to risk, uh, that you have to take more risk or potentially give up some return or at least be patient with your returns. But that's a decision that the investor is making. And that's because that investor perhaps 
uh, is very passionate about a certain thematic or a certain geography and is willing to make an investment that is what we would call impact first, that the impact is the priority to them over the financial return. But that's very different from another investor who may say, actually, I, I, I do not want to see a trade-off. A good example, there's a, a large family office in London uh, and New York, it's uh, both 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 jurisdictions uh, that has uh, 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 around uh, 400 million AUM. So it's a huge, uh, a huge family office investment uh, structure. And their, uh, their mandate, and they're very clear, and it's on their website, uh, and they're very transparent about it, is that all they want to do is achieve capital preservation. Um, and that, that uh, they don't need to knock the lights out in returns. They want to achieve capital preservation. Um, and otherwise, all their investment activity is going into improving uh, livelihoods of vulnerable populations in Africa. So the idea that you can invest in an agribusiness company uh, or a, a microfinance institution, uh, invest your money, receive a return uh, that is protected against inflation and have a very intentional impact on vulnerable populations. So it really does depend on, on, on what the investors uh, requirements are. Okay. Yeah, and you, you mentioned a couple, of, you saw a couple of phrases there, maximizing impact and measuring impact. Um, and we've, you know, we're all aware, well aware of the UN's SDGs and we've seen reports about, um, we produced a report very recently about um, mapping the uh, SDGs to the green social and sustainability bonds and, you know, they, and they went through that exercise and I've seen um, the Cambridge Sustainability Institute produce a very interesting report on the, um, you know, in search of impact, I think the report was about how one can go about measurement of, of impact. How do you see your clients, uh, what, what do your clients look for and how do you go about um, providing them that, um, that measurement service, as it were? What, 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 what are people looking to achieve? You know, how, you know, how, how is an impact of five or how is it a 10? How do you distinguish in terms of that? Obviously, we're always looking for the older 11 on there, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, a great, great question, Andy. Um, I think, you know, for, for an investment to be an impact investment, uh, it, it's absolutely critical that there is an ability to, to, to track, uh, to track uh, these, these, the, these impacts. So, you know, an impact investment is by its nature an investment that has an intention to generate a social and environmental impact alongside a financial return. Um, and therefore, you know, if an impact, if, if in order to be impactful, uh, the investor is therefore needs to be intentional in trying to achieve change through, through an investment strategy, achieve a social environmental outcome, uh, but also needs to be able to, to measure um, uh, transparently and credibly what that impact over over time uh, over that time is so so for us impact measurement is, is absolutely absolutely critical um, and it defines this 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 whole space um, you know if you are unable to uh, to to measure a clear impact um, and and measure those outputs and ultimately the outcomes what the impact was 
um, it's very difficult to be able to defend against uh, against uh, you know greenwashing or, or or impact washing. So how that practically works in in terms of our our, our engagements are to first of all sit down with um, with for example if it's a fund manager to to sit down with a fund manager. Uh, who is bringing um, a new impact fund to market or a new sustainable fund to market and have that that tough conversation about about um, authenticity and and uh, intentionality and saying that if you put the the word impact or sustainable in your fund you are um, telling the market that you are uh, planning to achieve uh, a whole range of non-financial returns as well as financial returns and immediately that uh, that that language has weight and that language has has consequences because you're attracting or you're holding yourself out to the market to in effect deliver a, a double bottom line or even potentially a triple bottom line to investors that not only suddenly not only are you on the hook for financial returns but you're on the hook for environmental and or social returns and therefore if you've in effect created a material risk for yourself, uh, unless you can credibly put in place um, a, a an impact measurement framework uh, that determines uh, what success looks like as a result of, let's say, putting 100 million in the market for a financial inclusion in East Africa, you know, what will that 100 million do in terms of lives changed? Or a 50 million investment into climate technologies, what will that do in terms of, of, of uh, uh, reducing carbon emissions? What does success look like? And then how do you put in place a framework that measures over time that success, right down to granular uh, KPIs? Um, and then once you have that framework in place, what kind of system do you have uh, that actually manages the process of data capture, uh, data analysis, and credible and transparent reporting back to not only shareholders, um, but in many cases of these funds, broader uh, stakeholders. If you are a climate fund, you're going to have uh, uh, international you know, NGOs looking at you. You're going to have the UN looking at you. You may have uh, communities in which you operate looking at you as well and asking very tough questions that if you don't have answers for, if you can't disaggregate the data and provide very granular evidence of impact, uh, there are credibility issues. And I think you know, that's really uh, the heart of what we do is, is articulating to investors why impact measurement is absolutely critical um, in terms of them being able to, to, to be credible um, to investors. And then the process of, of how you actually do that. And I think uh, in terms of our role, it's an essential one, not only to help design the frameworks and the KPIs and then help actually with the, the, the measurement, the ongoing measurement, but also to, to offer ourselves up as, as a, an independent and objective third party that independently verify the impact of these investments and demonstrate a commitment of the, the fund, for example, to, to, to doing this work in partnership with a, a, a third party and demonstrating that impact did or did not occur and how, uh, how that was different to perhaps what was intended. Um, in the first okay. place. I mean, again, the importance of data and the importance of measurement is, is key in all this. And if you make that point about verification and, uh, of, of, of the assets, um, uh, doing what they say on the tin, as it were. And I, I want to, to bring in the, the, the concepts of ESG and different types of investing in a moment, but it sort of lends itself as uh, to get there, as it were, in what, what we're about to ask you is, 
In terms of all this data uh, and the granularity, do you, do you sense that there's a, any sort of movement towards standardization in any way, shape or form? I mean, if you look at the green space, you've got the EU taxonomy and the, the need for consistent international standards. The ESG space, um, I think you know, what, what's quite new, helpful for people is that you can actually boil down all the ESG data, you know, six, seven hundred sort of variables going into one composite score. And I think people like the simplicity of that. Do you feel that in that in the more the sustainable space across the SDGs, there's a there's there's a there's a roadmap to getting to a, a standardized assessment framework with a standardized score so that investors can make a, a relative choice? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, I think you know with regard to to climate, I think there's no question that that mandatory reporting is is coming um the writing is on the wall um you look at the eu taxonomy um you know the eu requirement already in place for asset managers um to report uh, uh, uh climate related disclosures and and uh those those legislation coming into force for publicly listed companies and you know the warnings from regulators and central banks around the world you know this this is this is coming um i think with regards to the broader reporting against social outcomes or alignment with the UN SDGs, I, I feel, and what we see in the market is that these will remain voluntary. Uh, you know, they're currently voluntary and I, I think they're likely to remain so for the foreseeable future. However, you know, this really doesn't mean that companies or asset managers or asset owners don't need to do anything. Um, you know, there's a growing body of, of international standards and frameworks that the industry is adopting, um, whether that be the, you know, on the ESG side, whether that be the UN principles for responsible investing through to um, impact measurement standards, such as the ISC's operating principles for impact management, um, and then listing standards you mentioned, such as the green social and SDG bond principles set out by the International Capital Markets Associations. So I think, you know, in, in the case of these more voluntary standards, frankly, there is growing a growing pace of adoption because there is a need for for peer pressure peer pressure exists and therefore there is a need for uh for um industry actors to be able to demonstrate uh alignment with best practice uh alongside industry peers and as a result of that positive peer pressure we're only going to see a drive to greater adoption and i think you know if we go back five years um it very much was an alphabet soup of standards and i think what you're starting to see through um, the, the IFC's efforts, uh, through the Global Impact Investment Network's efforts. Uh, there's another um, uh, uh, industry body called the Impact uh, Management Project, uh, where you're starting to see you know, hundreds of, 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 of asset managers sign on to these. You're starting to see a, coalition, a coalesce, uh, coalescence around a, a smaller group of core standards and that these are starting to become industry practice. And I think that's always really helpful for, uh, in, uh, as a signaling mechanism to the market and to investors, um, that it just makes understanding this space um, easier. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's, our, that's our, our take on this space. I think, you know, the one other issue to, 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 to raise when it comes to ESG is, is I think, you know, there is a, a a mature and you'd say sort of almost uh, commoditized market for for ESG 
screenings and ESG ratings today. Um, and that's obviously been driven by market demand and again by peer pressure that every asset manager worth their salt has to have a, you know, an ESG fund. But I think the important thing to bear in mind is this is all pretty much in the, in the, um, in the publicly listed space. And that again is driven by companies having increasingly having to report ESG data uh, under mandatory regimes or increasingly under these sort of peer pressure based regimes. The challenge, however, comes in the private markets. And I think uh, the, the, the opportunity and the potential uh, around how do we build uh, incentives for, for private companies and private equity um, to, to develop really robust uh, uh, measurement and reporting standards uh, for, for private uh, ESG measurement and reporting standards for private companies. That, that is, I think, the next frontier um, and a really interesting space to, to, to explore. Interesting point you made talking about um, for private equity and talking about returns and, and transparency is uh, it's probably one of the one of the the, the, well, the private markets are obviously under a lot less there's a lot less transparency than, than listed companies and you're looking at future looking investments and you're looking forward looking as opposed to backward looking for ESG so you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there it's quite a I don't think anyone's got the the holy grail of, of it at the moment. One thing that came up, and you just mentioned it previously. Well, one thing that came up at the uh, in, in the in Private Wealth Week, uh, Sustainable Finance Week here in Guernsey in June, was that maybe uh, the owners of more I call more significant amounts of private wealth were looking really more at the the impact end of the investing spectrum rather than the ESG um, rating services that you just referred to. And do you see um, any any differences in the approaches of investors? And different investor type in, in terms of the scale of their wealth. You know, from the, and I'd say ask you, you know, more from the, the local Guernsey perspective here, you know, here on the ground on the Channel Islands about um, what you're seeing in developing terms of preferences and, and growing areas of demand. Yeah, so I think um, impact investing historically has always been the preserve of, of that sort of very boutique end of the market uh, of, of sort of uh, ultra high net private wealth. And this was, you know, this idea that, that you know, uh, um, entities or families with significant wealth could then uh, set aside uh, a portion of their, their wealth to, to invest in these types of investments that really targeted these, these intentional environmental and social outcomes as well as a financial return. I think what we've seen um, over the last few years is a rapid broadening of the market um, uh, and a broadening, therefore, of the, the, the investor types that are, that, are, uh, uh, that are interested in impact investing and wanting to actively deploy capital into it. So, you know, started within the private wealth space to see um, uh, family offices and foundations and, and uh, charitable trusts recognizing that impact investment starts to become uh, part of a more holistic uh, approach to how they um, deploy uh, deploy their their funding so you know from the philanthropic side of things impact investment is is, is seen as an opportunity to actually enhance uh, their their long-term philanthropic and charitable objectives because by investing in impact investments those investments 
also contribute to their 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 mission of 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 doing good because the nature of the investments uh the businesses they're investing in are having an impact on these environmental social issues but also the returns off of those types of investments then sort of grow your pot of of wealth that ultimately can be used and deployed for for private private capital uh for sorry for philanthropic opportunities and i think you know across sort of up the market you're starting to see um asset managers and uh banks um really looking at the impact investment market as an opportunity to for one to identify uh, new investment opportunities in emerging markets and two to respond to to a growing demand of of clients not just not just sort of ultra high net clients but high net clients and mass affluent clients to to invest in a way that that achieves positive impact in, in in for people and planet and i think you know you, that's that's linked directly to um uh, millennials and and the next generation of of wealth wealth holders where you know the myriad of surveys that exist um make it very clear that um the the, the younger generations have a, a a very explicit uh interest in making sure that that how they invest and how they save uh is not only going to deliver a financial return but is going to at least minimize neg- negative outcomes on the environment and on people and ideally um have a positive impact and even even more so if it can be invested in a way that that actually changes systems and improves systems even better so i think that 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 next gen uh drive and the respond to that from um more institutional uh, asset asset uh, asset managers is that's really driving um much larger adoption of impact investment strategies mm-hmm. and and growing AUM that we see in the impact investment industry okay cheers you just you mentioned about the millennials there or the, the transfer of wealth and i think you know in terms of drivers of de- of demand and I think we all know that the, the, the old 40 trillion figure about the, the generational wealth transfer, I think, was published by Merrill Lynch sometime last year. And that's a, it's a number that's bandied around typically. Um, and, and, and particularly as a, as a driver of, uh, of, de, of demand for, for these types of, of products. But others have said, uh, so in, particularly in the green space per, per se, that um, actually there's a, there's, a, there's a dearth of investment opportunities out there that meet the, these genuine criteria. In the, in the green space, if you look at, um, we're talking about the greening of the recovery post-COVID and the amount of public money that's purportedly being lined up to invest, uh, and there just aren't the oven-ready product, uh, projects out there uh, to you know, switch, switch on the tap, uh, as it were. Do you see that um, in the in more in the impactful space? Uh, do, do you find that you know you, you have people coming to you looking for investment opportunities, and there aren't those that really you know cut the mustard as it were, or or is it a case of um, there, there's a ready supply of, of homes for um, for capital looking to make a uh, a social good impact? Yeah, I mean from 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 our perspective, um, we we are seeing. Um, a very strong growth um, in the uh, in the development and bringing to market of of new um, new instruments, um, whether that be uh, funds, whether it be capital market instruments, 
or whether it be uh, what we call impact SMEs. Those are the sort of the frontline businesses often in, in uh, emerging markets who are you know, doing the impact, you know, whether it be off-grid energy or microfinance or social housing. Um, so I think in, in, in our world, we're seeing that there is um, a, a, an exponential growth of these opportunities. Um, so I, I don't see a sort of supply from our side. I don't see a, a sort of constraint between uh, supply and demand. Um, I think you know perhaps one of the challenges may be uh, the the, um, the the perhaps the traditional strictures uh, that asset uh, asset managers and asset owners may have in terms of issues around risk, um, issues around um, return, and issues around liquidity, um, and that you know their ability to to look at these investments, um, particularly those in emerging markets. Um, through their traditional um, sort of benchmark returns is is perhaps one of the 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 the, the points that are leading to inertia between deployment of, of capital into into these investments, and I think one of the the real solutions to that um, and where we see the the potential to to really um, when we talk about the UN SDGs, there's the language around billions to trillions that in order to finance the UN sustainable development goals and achieve their targets by 2030 you're talking about uh, uh, trillions of dollars of of capital being needed versus the billions that currently flow from from richer markets in the world to poorer markets in the world so the the way to get from those billions to trillions is by innovative financing structures and i think this this whole space of uh blended finance is really really fascinating uh and blended finance really is this concept that uh where an investment may create challenges for uh, an investor whether it comes to issues around risk return or liquidity that uh, you can create um capital stacks that bring different types of capital into the deal um, in such a way, and that capital could be f- purely philanthropic capital, that capital could be first loss capital where you have, um, let's say, for example, a sovereign, uh, a sovereign investor such, a development, uh, you know, such as a development finance institution or an international finance, financial institution such as the World Bank. A good example of a development finance institution would be the UK's CDC, that they may be willing to put capital in at risk and take, for example, a, a first loss provision. So when you start to build a capital stack that maybe has some, some philanthropic money in and has some first loss uh, or a guarantee type provision in, it means that then going to the market and approaching private investors um, is much, much easier because you know they're, 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 maybe their, their heart is saying, absolutely, I want to put capital into uh, quality healthcare or quality education in sub-Saharan Africa, but my accountant and, and financial advisor is telling me absolutely not, it's too risky. So when this capital stack is put in place and there is, there is a significant risk buffer in place put in by others, that completely changes the, the, the risk reward matrix that you're looking at in the investment. And it makes a deal that perhaps previously was not attractive because of these these investment parameters, suddenly much more attractive. And when these these types of of blended finance fund structures start to happen at scale, 
then you're 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 looking at bringing um, billions of 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 dollars of money that was historically on the sidelines into play into into the investment space. Um, and we're actively engaged in some of these really interesting um, projects um, that, that are are creating these blended finance stacks. Um, a good example is a $150 million uh, wildlife conservation bond that was supporting a, a major bank um, to launch uh, this November. Um, and that's focused on mobilizing 20 million in grant financing for black rhino protection and species recovery in South Africa through the use of a very innovative finance mechanism that defers the interest on the bond um, that will be paid back to investors with a premium by a sovereign outcome funder, including the UN's Global Environmental Facility. Um, so it's just, again, these, these very interesting um, innovative finance structures suddenly start to unlock uh, capital markets and institutional investors where previously they would not have stepped. That's interesting. But and you think? Um, sorry, I, I was my 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 mind was going there. Do you think that those types of structures are genuinely scalable, or they? I mean, I can understand them working at the 150, 20 million level. Do you think at the 1.5, 200 billion, 200 million level? Do you think that? that's the sort of approach that's going to be required to unlock the sort of capital that's required for the SDGs? Absolutely. We need to start getting these structures operating at, um, you know, not at the levels of hundreds of millions, but the levels of billions. Um, Yeah, Yeah, because I mean, the conversation we had in, um, and again in June was, you know, post-COVID talking about finance and sustainability was, the need to change the risk return profile and you know, as you've hit the nail on the head there about the, the, the blending of finance between the public and the private world and maybe looking at the the length of uh, the horizon of the investment um, uh, profile as well instead of like particularly for the say the private equity model we've always been historically looking at a, maybe a t- five ten year investment horizon that maybe if you're looking at the structuring, is there, a, is there a methodology by which that can get pushed out to the 15, 20 year uh, horizon? And would that make a difference in terms of that equalization of return with risk? Because uh, frankly, um, making the, you know, the risk adjusted returns for, the, for private capital is, I mean, it's the holy grail, isn't it? I mean, at the end, at the end of the day, philanthropic capital isn't going to, I don't believe, raise the, the trillions that's required. It's going to be capital that's you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, preserving itself or, or, or seeking to grow. But, um, but anyway, oh, sorry, I've got, got just you know, chewing the cud there myself. But one question I did want to ask you, you mentioned risk several times, and it's come up a few times, in that one of the drivers of capital into um, the, the, the green agenda and in fact actually it was obviously with TCFD and Mark Kearney about you know raising the issue about climate change risks and, and you mentioned it previously um, yourself um, but that being a, a driving factor between um, capital needing to go into the climate change mitigation agenda simply post-COVID uh, our notion of risk uh, and stability and resilience has, has, has also changed um, we're very fortunate here in Guernsey. We've been COVID-free for the last 100 days, so we're very fortunate in, in respect of our day-to-day lives is pretty much business as usual. Um, but we appreciate that's not necessarily the same uh, for everybody uh, throughout the globe. But this situation, do you think it's changed the, the notion of risk from your clients, from investors, so, you know, in terms of have they, have they made a fundamental reassessment in the last two or three months? 
That's a good question. I think a couple of answers to that. I think um, I, I touched on it earlier uh, about, you know, how do you do business in an environment where you can't travel anymore or you're you're fundamentally restricted in travel and i think that that's a fundamental you know that's that's a fascinating question and it has multiple implications so i said for example you know a uh, let's say a, an emerging market private equity fund um its whole uh modus operandi involves the ability to go in country and to do detailed due diligence on a potential investee company and to you know kick the tires through a really robust sort of 360 degree analysis and that's a financial analysis it's a governance analysis and if it's an impact fund then clearly you know you've got to basically be saying is this company impactful enough is it what it is what it's telling us about its business model and how that will uh, protect planet and 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 help with prosperity is that actually happening in reality? And that's a really rigorous and intensive due diligence process that requires trust and it requires time going in country. You can't do any of that anymore. So how do you do that to the same level of rigor to therefore um, give you your investors and your board confidence that a decision that you've made around making an investment is as rigorous as it was in 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 in, in a pre-COVID era, uh, and I think that's intriguing, and it relies on some really interesting new ways of working. So, you know, a, a great example of of uh, uh, a fund that I I I'm a non-exec here on in Guernsey, looking at an investment into India. They can't go to India, but they've identified um, Indian co-investors. Uh, so this is the, the sort of the indigenous impact investment uh, market in India. And uh, through a clear alignment with those investors, uh, it is that Indian investor who's doing all of the due diligence on their behalf because they can, to a greater extent, travel and meet the investee company. Um, but also, I'd, I'd say, you know, that's a good example. But I think also when it comes to risks, I think there's just a different understanding of how we have to do business. And perhaps, you know, the meeting in London to have a handshake and, and have coffee and look in the whites of the eyes, we have to somehow translate that to the digital world. And, you know, we've just been a, through scenarios of business where we, uh, you know, one is obviously maintaining existing client relationships through 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 distance, and that's that's okay because it's it's you have that existing basis of trust. But winning new business, I think that's a real challenge, and we've just been a, through a process of 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 um, pitching for 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 a client engagement and winning that client engagement pretty much entirely remotely, um, and the work will be done remotely. Uh, we won't probably actually ever meet the, the client, at least for this initial period of time, uh, the initial phase of, of work. Um, and that's, that's, that's really, for us, that's fascinating because that's a real test, test, test case, um, that if we can do that, then maybe as you said, you know, that becomes the new normal that you can, you can still build trust, uh, win business 
and deliver work in a in a in a in a, in a COVID or post COVID environment. So yeah, no. well, yeah, I mean, I, that that's a good, good point. I mean, I think you've taken this pretty much full circle. We started off the conversation about asking about how the investment environment had changed post COVID, and you've actually you know we've ended concluded by talking about how um, the you know your business experience and uh, the whole process has changed post COVID. The deployment of technology to to enable you facilitate. Uh, you doing business and justin thank you very much you've taken us the conversation there that's taken in africa it's taken in india obviously it's taken in london and guernsey too but just bringing you back one final question to bring you back maybe having our uh, sort of tour around the world but bringing us back to here in the channel islands in guernsey obviously the sustainable finance uh, sort of focus uh, the channel islands and particularly in guernsey here with the green finance initiative and the sustainable finance week and our um, focus on sustainability have you seen you know, has it been good for uh, for your clients? And have you seen particular change locally over the last two or three years? And as you know, uh, do, you, do you sense uh, a difference to to when you first came to the island? Absolutely. I, I think you know if uh, if go if we go back five years, I think the the level of awareness and understanding and sense of opportunity when it came to um green sustainable and impact investing was 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 much lower um and a lot more skepticism and i think i think where we are today is is a very different place i think um you know the the, the climate crisis and the existentiality of that is is driving that in part but i'd say also it's not just environmental issues as at the start of the podcast i mentioned you know these key drivers around covid and black lives matter and the, the sort of underlying inequality that exists in our in our world today i think all of these have have given momentum to to this space um, so i think there's a, a much much greater re, uh, receptivity to 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 these issues and also a sense that um, the market wants uh, products that 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 address uh, these key issues um, these key challenges that, that our planet faces today and you know there is no um, you know there is no harm in 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 uh, addressing this space in a way that 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 uh, uh, authentically delivers solutions to to global problems in a way that is 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 profitable um, for for all parties involved so I think I think definitely there's a sea change in terms of understanding and awareness and there's a significant opportunity uh, to capture here um, across this spectrum of 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 sustainable and impact investing okay and on that <laughs> but no i think we'll leave it and it just remains to say to thank you justin for your time this morning it's been it's been a pleasure knowing you the last few years and obviously we'll know each other for, for many more i hope so that was me andy sloan speaking to justin science founder and managing director of universal advisory i must admit just i was particularly taken with the uh the concept of the, you know, the scalable stack or the the, the the capital stack and if we could find a way to turn it into a scalable stack i think we'd maybe have that uh, panacea of finding that private capital product that will mobilize um the private capital for sustainability post covid which is i think was the it, it's something i think that there's, that there's many uh policy people around the, around the world looking uh looking to solve that conundrum but anyway Thank you very much. Just remains to be said, we have a back catalogue of interviews and discussions on the Guernsey Green Finance podcast site. You can check them out uh, by uh, searching for Guernsey Green Finance wherever you get your uh, podcast 
uh, or whichever podcast platform you use. You can also find us at guernseygreenfinance.org and also we are guernsey.com. Interact with us on Twitter at GSY Green Finance and at We Are Guernsey. Uh, we also have links to Invest's social media in our show notes and in these webinars, part of Sustainable Finance Week. So check these out to hear more from Justin. And we'll be back with another edition of the Guernsey Green Finance podcast in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, until then, I've been told to keep it green. Thank you very much, Justin. Thank you, Andy.